Blog Talk Radio. Tennis, Mr. Chuck Creasy. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. And good morning once again, and it's good to be back. This is Coach Chuck Creasy, and it's another week of American tennis. And uh, folks, we're going to keep the program going here. I would be a dummy not to, daggone, you know, we started this on June 2nd of 2012, if you can believe that, 2012, so we're coming up on 10 years of American tennis where we've uh, been coming to you every week. Now, again, I'm going to get caught up on all the technology stuff here one of these days, and I know that people do videos with it and and other stuff, but uh, we pretty much have put in, holy cow, four or 500 programs, I think, and uh, I know three to 400 anyway. I need to go back and <clears throat> count them, but every week on Wednesdays, usually it's American Tennis Week. Now, we need to discuss a lot of things, and we, I've, we've got a couple uh, of great guests today that will, will help, and I think it's going to be just uh, tremendously uh informative, uh, hopefully entertaining, but some things that you are going to want to hear uh, about tennis training, about what what everything looks like in the future, and uh, just some ideas of what we might do to try to make tennis better in, in the United States of America. And uh, there's, there's some hope out there. I, we've got a good group of young players that are coming up. Uh, and, and if they break through, um, a lot of them have broken through to the top 100, which is really good. And hats off to uh, the great Kent Kinnear and the training center that they've got going down there with USTA and and all the work that those guys put in. I know they're trying like crazy to uh, put America back, you know, on top. Uh, the challenges are a lot. The challenges are not just against other countries like they talk about, whether it's 
the uh, Eastern European bloc countries that uh, are really going after tennis. Asia getting involved now. Uh, South America has always been strong. Europe, of course, has tons of players. Uh, it, it's, it's a great sport in Europe, and it's easy to travel around. But, you know, for the USA, we have always been on top. We, we expect to be on top, and we need to be the trendsetters. And that's it's that simple. So we're going to try to try to see what we can talk about and, and get uh, get to the bottom of some stuff. Uh, I, as you know, I'm not going to go on about <clears throat> what how we've diluted, polluted, and prostituted the greatest sport in the world. Today we've got plenty of programs on that. I am just beside myself about how these uh, abbreviated scoring is entered in uh, to our sport and how they're dumbing it down, trying to make it more streamlined. And I keep asking people, oh, after 150 years, after 150 years, well, we just now got smart. Is this because we should do this or just because we can? Maybe we can. Maybe we have communication now and Internet and stuff, and we can uh, people can sort of push their ideas through. Well, I, I always I want to make this point, too. If this no-ad scoring was so doggone good, if the tiebreaker for the third set was so doggone good, why wouldn't people just be jumping out of their skins all over the world trying to do the same thing? They have pushed this down our throat. The, the ITA started out in college, and they have pushed it down our throats against Many of the objections, many objections from the players, coaches, and everybody, and parents. Parents don't quite know any better right now. And and but why hasn't people gone? Why haven't people gone? Wow, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Wow, I'm going to go watch a college match because it's so exciting now to see one point determine the whole outcome. Uh, and it it is really really just uh, wrong thinking, the wrong thinking and the wrong approach to dilute, to pollute, to prostitute anything as great as the sport of tennis. And we'll talk about that today, about the history, the heritage, and the heroes of the sport of tennis and how uh, we should be taking care of that and uh, and, and much more. Um, I want to bring on to the uh, program here, uh, who I consider maybe one of the uh, probably the, the the best and one of the best top ten for sure greatest collegiate players we have had in college, especially he had an outstanding freshman year, uh, un- unbelievable some of the things that he's accomplished. And when you look at your own accomplishments, you look back and just say, well, that was just hard work and things that I needed to do and things I needed to get through. But um, Mitchell Frank, I'm going to bring him on the air here in a second, but I'm going to just read a couple things to you all and, and tell you this. Uh, I met Mitchell when he was about 15 years old, and I was uh, at that time I was in Thailand. Uh, I was technical director for Southeast Asia Tennis there, and I was coaching a lot of the Thai players, traveling around with the Thai players, and just traveling and traveling, and and uh, we were in the D.C. area, and I saw this young man, and uh, uncanny ability to make balls under pressure and to do the next right thing over and over and over again, and 
and uh, then following his career all the way through Europe in um, junior tennis, I was uh, traveling around a lot too and just seeing him defy the odds so many times and, and beat players who where he had to start out from behind and had to work his way back into matches and things. But I'm going to give you this statistic about Mitchell Frank. Okay, First of all, people will talk about Hey, he was the only player in collegiate history. History, there there used to be four Grand Slam events: it was the clay courts, the National Indoors, the All American Tournament, the NCAA. They've dropped the clay court tournament, but he's the only player in history. As a freshman, he won the National Indoors and he won the uh, the National All American Tournament with all the best players. And I think he was 29 and 0 going into. I think I don't think he lost until the quarterfinals of the NCAA's that year. But also, he'll I have to get him to tell the story of how he uh, Virginia was knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door for uh, three or four years there with great teams. And Mitchell Frank was the one that finally got him over the. The hump to beat UCLA in a very, very dramatic match. But I'm going to say this before uh, Mitchell comes on, and I'm going to get this story right. The first thing I'm going to do, Mitchell, I know you're listening to me. I don't haven't clicked you on yet, but I want to know about the match you played in Australia at the Australian Open Juniors, and you must have won at least. Well, I know they weren't playing no ad in the Grand Slam, but you had to win minimum 48 points. You probably won 70 points, but you made zero unforced errors the entire match. And uh, but I want to hear hear that story a little bit. But what I love too is that he is working with young people right now and um, mentoring those young people that are coming up next. And I know for sure that they will not be taking shortcuts. They'll be doing the right things. And they'll be honoring the game, which is above all most important. And we don't have Coach J.P. Weber on yet, but we expect him to join here. He always gets pretty busy. Mitchell Frank, good morning. How are you doing? Hey, Coach. Uh, thanks for having me on, as always. So, Well, I think we had you on one time as a yep. top junior in the United States. Uh, if you remember at College Park, Maryland, we had you on one time, and that's where in the world did the time go, huh? That's that's amazing. It's crazy, yeah. It's crazy, yeah. yeah. It was in 2013. You had me on, so earlier on in the show. So hopefully uh, that way people uh, aren't sick of me yet. So <laughs> no, no, no. There's there, there's no way. There's no way. I there is everything that is good. I want I want to ask you first of all if I got these stories right. I want to know about the match in Australia the Australian Open juniors, and you made zero unforced errors. Tell me the story. Tell her by the story. Uh, what was your score? What was, I mean, I, yeah, I've never well, I, seen this. <laughs> yeah, so I think I was the four seed at the Australian Open um, and had a rough warm-up tournament in Taralgon, uh lost first round to a good, a good Australian wild card. Um, but came in and was playing an Aussie wild card, actually first round, Jay Andrzejic. And uh, I remember I was super, super nervous before the match because I just didn't, you know, I didn't have any wins going into the tournament. I'd practiced well, but um, wasn't exactly uh, as confident as I could have been. Um, and I went into the match and 
I remember I, I, I you know, went up an early break and uh, was kind of cruising and you know, won the first at 6-2 and, um, you know, and then kind of kept cruising the second set. And after the, you know, after a while, I was kind of like, wow, like I'm not missing. I haven't missed. Um, and, and yes, the guy still won a lot of points and yes, the guy was a good player, but I was able to execute, you know, under the pressure pretty, you know, pretty perfectly that day. And, uh, you know, my game was obviously always based on making a lot of balls. And, um, so after the match, I remember Vin was there with me and he came up to me he was like, Hey, Coach you, know, you, uh, yeah. yeah, Coach yeah. yeah, he 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 came up to me and he said, "Good match, you know, good good work. Um, you know, you didn't make one enforced stare in the whole match." And I remember I like, yeah, I, I you know, you're not that aware, obviously, as you know, on the court as as a player, you know, you do have a sense of how much you are missing, but um, you know, you're not exactly counting unforced stares. So, um, but yeah, so I remember I came off the court and. Uh, you know, and uh, played uh, played a solid match. And as everybody knows, who you know has played first round matches are always really tough. Uh, it does not matter who you play. It not matter if they're you know best player in the world or not. Um, you know the nerves are there, especially you know being a high seed in the tournament and uh, you're flying all the way down there. And I you know know you know all the people who helped support me to you know get me there. There was you know, I remember I was I was shaking before the match. So um, you know. I well, that's what that I want to talk about. I want to talk about that a little bit. People out there are saying, wow, are you kidding me? The player that's seated fourth at the Australian Open, and he's playing, and he's nervous. Can you talk? Is, is that part of what great players go through? I mean, because I think you're answering some of those questions that we've talked about before with the juniors you work with and how they're dealing with that. Go ahead. Yeah, so – I think, and I actually had a talk with one of my players the other day, because uh, two of the two of my players play each other, and you know they were both hyper, like very nervous. And I saw, I was very fortunate to see the match uh, up at College Park, and um, you know I asked one of the kids after the kid who lost. I said, uh, you know, he he texted me and he wrote a message that said, "Hey, uh, so I'm really struggling in especially first sets of matches because I'm just so nervous." And I asked him afterwards, I said, well, so what do you want? Do you want to be less nervous? Do you want to be loose? And, I, and he said, yeah, I want to be loose. I want to be loose, coach. You know, that, that's what I want. And I was like, no, that's not mm-hmm. what you want. I said, if you're, you know, if you're loose, then you don't care. And if you're loose, then, you know, you don't have the right amount of pressure on you. So, you know, going to kind of answer that question, yes, the best players are extremely nervous and they're executing in spite of it. And that comes from, you know, I, I was explaining this. Actually, one of the kids asked me the question about that the other day. And I explained to him, you know, a good practice for me, which is going to sound crazy to probably most of the people listening, was to miss zero balls in practice. That was a good practice. That was not a great practice. That was a good practice. Now, a lot of people are like, wait, what? That's, you obviously miss balls in practice. Yes, I miss balls every single time in practice. But a good practice to me mentality-wise was zero misses. Anything less than that was – I knew I was going to miss, but it was, it was what I was striving for every single day. And so, so as a result, that was the standard that I set. And in my opinion, as a result, when, when you get nervous, you go back to your habits, you go back to the things that you've been practicing, you go back to the things that you are comfortable with in most cases. And so when you train yourself with that mentality, you know, maybe once in a blue moon you can execute on it. And I guess that day that's what happened. But – um, you know, that's the only way that happens under pressure. So, you know, I, I did actually an experiment this past summer, Coach, you might like this, that 
I had kids estimate how many more misses they have in tournaments versus, you know, versus um, practices. And we came out to the number being for most players about three times as many misses, you know, for, wow. for the same amount of time. And so basically the idea is that – so what I stress with a lot of my players, like if you, every time you miss a ball, that could be three misses in the mess. That's a lot of points. You're giving away a lot of points. And so, so you know, as I said, like, you know, I, I, when you go into these situations, in my opinion, the, the, the pressure is going to make it – I mean, obviously there's a lot of players who does help them. Um, in my opinion, like for me, I think it helped me. It helped me focus a little extra, um, you know, in those moments. But for a lot of these kids, it actually hurts them. And so, you know, you're going to see the higher number of misses. So when players are not aware of the number of misses in practice, it, you know, when they go in and the pressure hits them, generally they're going to miss more. Generally they're going to perform worse. So that's why I'm super hyper aware with my players at least about how, how you know, their error counts in practice because I just assume that it's just going to go up and up and up as they go and compete. Right. Now, I want to ask you about this. <clears throat> the flip side of that is this new thing people talk about. They talk about serve plus one or uh, first strike tennis or winners first and dictate. And What are your thoughts? thoughts there i mean I, i'm leading because i want to talk to people out there about that we're, we're really might be going the wrong way because we have kids that can all knock the fool out of the ball but mitchell they miss it's like i always say it's like having a great looking jump shot in basketball but it never goes in the hole <laughs> they you know they got this beautiful shot from 40 foot but they miss eight out of ten times. So, what? Talk about that. What's your thoughts? You've surely heard that. Absolutely, yeah. So, I actually had um, one of my <coughs> one of my friends, um, and he was a good player. He played at Wisconsin. Um, we were talking about this similarly uh, the other day, um, and the idea is this: people like things that they can aesthetically see, and they like things that they can measure. So anything that goes along with that, generally, yes, you can get the statistics. And, yes, you can say that, you know, whatever. One year at Australia, 78% of the points, you know, whatever. A certain number were, um, were you know, played whatever, under four shots or less. And, and, yes, that can statistically be somewhat accurate. But the whole point is that a lot, have, have people watch on some of the big points how the rallies – like I think back to the Federer-Nadal 2006. 17 Australian Open. Um, I think it was at Deuce with Federer serving 5-3, and they played that incredibly, or maybe it was to get the break point 4-3. Um, they played that incredibly long point, and Federer had a sliding forehand down the line winner, and that rally was probably, you know, 23 shots. And so, to me, still always the base of the game is going to be, you know, making balls. And, and I think that this goes into saying this. I ask my kids regularly, probably at least a couple times a week, if they hit eight solid balls, every point, every point went eight solid balls, how many matches would they lose? And they say that every single time, all of them say zero. They say zero. They say if every rally went eight balls, I would lose zero matches. And so to me, that always still speaks to the idea that, you know, working a point, um, you know, learning how to construct the point, learning how to, um, you know, stay in points, learning how to neutralize is, is still – 
in my opinion, I mean, look at Djokovic. I mean, Djokovic to me plays, um, you know, the 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 best form of tennis in the world. In the world, like if you're going to emulate a player, Djokovic is. Pretty, yes, he has a lot of talent, but I think that his game. You know, I always look at like is a player. Um, are are there things that are like special or unique? Like you know, it's really tough to emulate Federer. It's really tough to emulate Nadal. But like, can you? emulate a, a David Ferrer? And in my opinion, the answer is yes. And what do all those guys, undersized or, you know, maybe don't have the same talent levels, what do they all do? Well, they all are incredible defenders. They're incredible movers. They, they play with good depth. They make you work the point over and over and over and over. And that's almost, you know, how you see a lot of these guys play. Um, so, you know, again, I, I think – I think yes. Do we need do we need good serves? You know, good first balls. Absolutely. I think it's an important part of the game. But is that is that like you know should everything be four shots or less? Is everything gonna? No. I mean, I think I think that 100 percent we're going down the wrong path because it's also making the game. We're trying to play faster, and at the end of the day, there's a reason. I mean, you know, nothing against you know some of. Um, you know, some of our federation, but a big thing that they looked for was big serve, big forehand. And that's, if you ask people, um, you know, what, what, do, what are Americans known for? It's like big serve, big forehand. That's, you know, Andy Roddick, Pete Sampras, you know, these type of guys. Um, and you look at the best players in the world um, and look at Medvedev. You know, he plays, he plays, you know, 25 feet behind the baseline to return. You know, so I, I, you know, coach, I think, I think that, I think that we could be following a red herring here, um, you know, based off of statistics that don't, you know, it, you can, statistics don't, you, you have to have context to understand a statistic. It's not, people love to just throw them around like, it's, you know, the be all end all. Um, and, and I think that there's, there's context to it that's missing sometimes. Correct. Uh, and, and I've written a, a page of notes here. And I'm going to try to get through them quickly. And I completely agree. I've coached now, folks, I've coached 51 years. This is year 44 in collegiate tennis. I've figured out I've seen over 26,000, seen 26,000 matches. <clears throat> and I, it's, I pay attention to all of them. And uh, let me explain this. Now, some of you are going, no, no, it's first strike tennis. The bigger shots win. Uh, but uh, let me let me explain this first. Um, 78% of the points they say are four four balls or less. All right. So that leaves 22%. Now let me tell you a quick Mitchell Frank story. <clears throat> so I took a group of junior players at College Park, Maryland, when I was working there, and we cannot take our hat, hat off more or be more grateful. Uh, than to be able to work uh, with Vesa Ponka there, who and Frank Salazar, and 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 just to be able to work there because the the real the real brilliance is there in the work that they he put in to establish a culture of excellence. So Mitchell was playing on the red clay up there uh, in the very back courts, and I was working with some young younger players, some fourteen year olds, and. We went back, and I think you were playing some big, hard-hitting hit, guy and watching you play, and I said, okay, this is a top-five player in the United States right here. This guy here looks really good, but I want you all to understand why this one over here wins all the time. And I pointed out <clears throat> this. 
Mitchell, you're right. Maybe 78% of the points, 78% of the points are first strike tennis or are done when shot less than four. That's a number. If you, I told those kids that day, Mitchell Frank is playing 150 points in this match. This other kid over here is going to win 55 points outright by big shots or something. Now that leaves 95. Well, Mitchell, out of those 95, Mitchell Frank, with his shots and making every ball, he wins 30 points. So that's 85 points. He did, he's 35. The other guy almost hits twice as many winners, twice as many forcing shots. But what we don't see, there are 65, six, excuse me, 50, uh, 65 points that are war zone points, I told him. War zone points, battle points, fight for this point. Mitchell Frank wins this. 40 to 25. I told him it might have been 45 to 20. 40 to 25. Now, I want to ask you something. How many, what's the difference in that amount of war zone points? They say 40 to 25. They say oh, 15. I said, no, no, it's eight. Because if Mitchell would won eight less, he would have lost the war zones. It's just like the point that you win in those war zones are worth two, and much more than that because they dent the other guys so much. When you hit those streaking winners that they talk about to 78% of the time, folks, they're only worth one. The war zone points are really worth two, and the unforced errors by the other guy are really worth two. They are a two-point swing. And I said, that's why no one sees what Mitchell Frank, how. It's just like, it would be like a football player, football team, Mitchell, has a great, great quarterback and a great running back, but a crummy line, a scrimmage. And they they don't win. And you're going, whoa, whoa, why? wait a minute. They've got all this, uh, well, the meat and potatoes isn't there. It's interesting. You said eight rallies and your kids would win every tournament. I've always told high school players, Mom, Dad, high school player, if you're listening out there, if you can make six balls in a row, I didn't say six great shots. I mean, six balls in a row in high school tennis, you'll hardly ever lose in a high school match. You know, so, Mitchell, I, um, the first thing I do with our, our players um, when we start out the fall, I said there's three ways to win a point. My winner, your winner, you force an error or you accept an error from your opponent. There's three ways for him to win it. Same thing. The opponent's winner, opponent forces an error, or maybe my error. Great players do number two, three, and four. They force errors. They accept errors. And if the other person wins a point, they have to hit it out right. And I preach every day, the only points we lose come off of the other guy's racket. The only point we lose comes off the other guy's racket. We do not lose any point that comes off of our racket. And that takes that's the discipline. But if you youngsters want to win out there, listen to what we're saying. Listen to what we're saying. Get it in your head. Number one rule in any sport is don't beat yourself. Okay? And the last thing, Mitchell, I, I want to get your idea on this. Yeah, big shots are important. 
you work on big shots, big targets, but give yourself margins. Your big shots scare the other person, but the small small balls that you make win big matches, you know. So anyhow, any thoughts real quick that I that I brought up there? That's pretty much how you played, though, Mitchell. I, I used to uh, try to study. Oh, gosh, who was that team you beat? I'm trying to think. I think you were beating the semifinals out there, Texas A&M. I watched your whole match. Uh, no, no, it was Bay, at Baylor. Who were you playing in the uh, semifinals in NCAA? Who? Uh, we, play, you, we play. I mean, at, at Baylor, we played Baylor in the semis. In the semis, you were playing Baylor, and your kid that you were playing had this big, big strike tennis, but then he just – the guy just sort of went away. You know, yep. he, he just yep. – uh, no, no, and another one – Against Southern Cal, your freshman year, I think you were playing yeah. indoors at Georgia. I watched that match, right. and that other kid was good, but Mitchell yep. he beat himself like six one, six two, or something like that. And I, yep. you know, people were watching. I said, "Who do you think's winning down there?" He, they said, "Mitchell Frank's getting killed," and yep. he, you won six one, six two. You always were carrying the balls at the end of the match. <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah, I. I think, I think, Coach, I think an important thing for everybody to hear, too, is, um, you know, there, there's a, a big part of this is, is a mentality shift. And so that's the most dangerous thing about, you know, saying that the first strike tennis, that it gets the, the players, even, even let's say if there was some, like a, a, let's say there's 50% truth to that. The problem is that the mentality, in my, in my experience, not to have anywhere near the experience of most coaches out there, but like, Play, uh, players are generally pretty extreme. I was extreme. Um, and so, so the whole thing is that there's a mentality to it that is, in my opinion, the key to finding success. And so, you know, I, I always like to say, you know, that I, you know, so coach, I know you say there's three ways to win and three ways to lose points. So my mentality actually looking back on it was that I didn't believe anybody could force an error on me. Which sounds a little crazy because I believe if I got my racket on the ball, the ball should go in. And so I believed I could force errors on the opponent, though. But I didn't think that they could force errors on me. So, so a little bit of it for me was, I think, and, and for a lot, a lot of kids, I was just understanding that, you know, making – I watched the other day, Coach. I watched Roberto Batista Agut play uh, Stefano Travaglia. He's like 97 in the world. You know, good player, rips his forehand, you know, good backhand. And, you know, Batista Gut, uh, you know, wins the first set, goes up 4-0 in the second, and then the guy, uh, uh, and then uh, Travaglia catches fire. And he's playing unbelievable coach for about a set and a half. He actually loses the second set 6-4, you know, comes back, loses 6-4, but like, you know, had love 30 at 5-4. Third set goes, wins the tiebreak. Wins the tiebreak. And I was watching with some of my players, and I – I go to them, like, watch, watch this fourth set. And immediately, Batista Agut is up 4-0 on the guy. And the whole point is that Batista Agut's level was the same throughout. And the other guy was out playing him for a good stretch. But it's, you know, it's kind of like the law of averages. He's assuming that my, my, my base game, my solid, my average game, regular stuff is good enough. And, and this guy is, you know, let's find out why he's 97 you know, in the world. And the reason why is apparently his level can't sustain at that level over a long course of time. And it was so perfect to watch. It was the most beautiful tennis I'd seen in a while because it, it's, it's, just, it's just so solid. 
And I think an important thing is that, you know, it's, again, game beyond the aesthetics of the idea that I have to, you know, look good to play good. Um, and, and I think that we get very caught up in that, uh, both as players and coaches, to be, to be completely honest. Like, we love clean ball strength, and everybody loves that. Um, and I think that, you know, what we forget is there's still three biggest weapons in tennis are always going to be your mind, heart, and legs. Every player in the top of the game has those. And to discount those, um, the reason why we discount those is, again, because we can't measure them. We don't know where people are on the spectrum with those. It's very easy to tell where somebody's forehand is on the spectrum, you know. The, uh, there's an interesting thing I, I came up with. I've been pounding. <clears throat> My team has to beat people through more attrition. And um, it's just the way, I, you know, that, that it is. Um, you've just given me something to hold on to as we go into this stretch of matches in January February. We play against SEC teams, and we play against some ACC teams, and <clears throat> the ball strikers are big. But I love what you said is I believe no one can force me an error, force an error out of me. And when – you get to that place, it, it is tremendously comforting, but uh, that, that is, should be the, the first thing we teach instead of hit bigger, hit bigger, hit bigger. Uh, and, and here is another thing that I used to talk about all the time is I said, when did you win the match before you won the match? And uh, players, if they think, they'll say, well, I was back, uh, started a second set, I had that long game, and uh, I won that long game, and then the guy started checking out. He started just missing for uh, no reason. But here is the thing I came up with about two weeks ago, Mitchell. You know, after 51 years, you'd think I'd figure out a few things, but this uh, this <laughs> is what I realized. You win points and you lose points. You physically, mentally, emotionally are three parts of you when you play a match. Like you say, mind, heart, and legs. That's what made me think of this. So the point being is that when you, when you lose a point, you can lose one physically because your strokes weren't good enough, right? Correct? Yes. Yeah, you can lose yes. one mentally because you had bad shot selection, right? Yes. And you can lose yep. one emotionally because you you either get afraid or you get hyper or you get mad. You can lose one emotionally, correct? Yes. So you lose three ways. But winning a point outright, you only can win a point, hit a winner physically. Mentally and emotionally, you do not hit winners. You must break the other man, the other woman. You must force them into errors mentally with your strategy, or you must force them into errors by emotionally staying stable and the pressure that mounts on their side of the court. You must make make sure the pressure mounts on their side of the court with the way you handle all the pressure, you know. So consequently, I want to talk about this briefly here. Coach Weber has not checked in yet. I know he got tied up teaching here. Uh, Mitchell, they've gone to this. I'm, I'm so, oh, I could talk to you forever. I'm so upset about the bastardization of our scoring system. And we have 
people making these decisions that literally do not understand tennis. And I'm saying that outright, whether you're a college coach, I'm not being mean, but if you don't understand the depth of college, of depth of tennis, and the importance of our scoring system, I'm saying you don't understand tennis deep enough. College coach, regular coach, you could be a pro coach, you could be a pro player. If you don't understand the importance of our system of regular scoring and the bastardization that you don't understand tennis, but number two, you do not honor it by protecting the history and the heritage of the game for 150 years. I mean, Mitchell, somebody, could you imagine we start going to uh, no ad sets at, at the French Open or something? Now, somebody tries to compare somebody's record compared to a Borg, what Borg did there or what Nadal has done here recently on clay. I mean, is that a laughing stock or what? No ad? You know, and, and, yeah. and so – and, and I, I would go go ahead. Your thoughts. I, I I'm not just trying. To, I think I know where you stand. But the whole chess game is done. We're we are now playing arena football instead of regular. I mean, it's it's just. I mean, I'm really afraid that kids will not fall in love with it to the depth that they do. They, the ball striking and rah 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 I win is not enough to keep people in tennis. The the chess part of it is is what keeps people in. Any th- thoughts yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. So I I I agree with you um, for for a couple reasons for a couple even different reasons too, Coach. Um, you know, so one is I believe that tennis is the ultimate sport. It requires endurance. It requires agility. It requires uh, you know stamina. It requires speed, and it requires mental you know, agility, mental stamina, mental endurance, uh, you know, and mental speed in a sense. And so when you get into these situations where, um, where, where you're shortening scoring like that, and, and I just, you know, I just went to a term this weekend and, you know, uh, my players, you know, there were, they, they started playing four game sets, um, you know, short, short sets. And, and, you know, and so, you know, my, one of my kids actually, you know, had a couple war games, war zone games there um, in the beginning of the set. And, you know, I, I, really, I wasn't there, but I, you know, I told the parent, I was like, yeah, this is really good for the kid. Because, you know, the other kid he was playing against was, you know, a clean ball striker, you know, aesthetically very nice to look at, you know, kind of thing. Um, and, you know, has some, I mean, literally their first four games, Coach, took one out. And out. Uh, they, I mean, you know how this is, uh, this is a little defeat. And um, one hour for four Love games. Love it. I'm like, this is awesome. Like this is great for the kid, right? All of a sudden, three two, right? They play, you know, they battle a little bit, gets broken. Kid holds the next game, sets over, you know. And all of a sudden, right next set starts, and instead of seeing, okay, it's four two, but like, man, I've had to work so hard, and for such, you know, for so few games. Instead of seeing that, the kid's like, oh, I'm one game away. I just, you know, I, I it, it sets over, and then we can, you know, reset. So I think that there's. I think it takes away also from also how kids should be trained. I think it, you know, dissuades people from, you know, needing to be fit. It dissuades people from being even mentally fit. Um, and it really just rewards me. I, I mean, I can't tell you, Coach, if I played short sets, how many matches I would have lost uh, because 
just like you, uh, and this is something, you know, you used to always say to me, we'd practice and I would lose. Uh, and you'd be like, you know, Mitchell, never get worried about losing a practice set because, you know, if they win the first set against you, it's even. And if you win the first set, they're in a big hole because your game kicks in at about the 45 to hour 15, uh, you know, minute mark. Correct. Um, and so, and so I think that that takes away. And I think that's the most personally, I'm mean, again, I'm, I'm highly biased because it was how I played, but I think it's the most beautiful way to play this game. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's a lot like, you know, I just watched this great, I think I told you about it, Coach, but I just watched, you know, this great documentary, 14 Peaks. And uh, it's about a guy who climbs four, the 14 8,000-meter peaks, which is impressive in, in, you know, in six months. And the next best record was seven years. So he does it in this insane short time. And if you take it, take it this, like, it's, it's like saying, okay, you're in a Summit K2, but we're going to cut out uh, the bottleneck, which is the toughest part. It's up at about 8,000 meters. And there's a giant overhanging Serac, and and it's like, okay, yeah, no, you only have to climb, you only have to climb to Camp Four, where yes, it's still dangerous, but it, it's not to the same degree. So I right. think I think that just the you know the shortened scoring, um, it, it it hurts players personally speaking. I mean, you know, when they were shortening my last year of college, and I was uh, leading the charge against it because you know it, it's not how the game is designed to play, and I think. That when you look at like hard work in tennis, in my opinion, coach, you know, fitness is a big part of it, mental and physical. And, you know, focus is the, the difference in focus. You know, there's no doubt if we go to school, every kid can focus for five minutes. Every kid can focus for 10 minutes. <laughs> but it, what, makes, what makes us, you know, a special, what makes somebody unique is somebody who can focus over the course of a long period of time. And as a result, those are also, I mean, you look at these, you know, I mean, again, you know, not to go into a different industry, but you look at these people who are super successful in business or whatnot, they're the people who are focused over a long, 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 long period of time. They don't check in and out, you know, and that's kind of like what we reward by shortening. So I think it's also going to cost our players, not just on the tennis court, but in their lives, um, you know, so. Thank you. Thank No, thank you. I'm going to – Coach Weber just came on. I'm going to get him on here in a second. But I've I got to make a point here. Mitchell Frank, you have said and summed this up so very well from the player's aspect. Actually, you had 1,347 signatures to not change the scoring system from players. And the ITA did it anyway. They forced it through. We voted this down four times, and the ITA pushed it through anyway. Coach Lynn Loring of Indiana University Women had 196 signed, signed women coaches sign a petition, and they pushed it through anyway. I I submit to you, and I believe there is an outside entity that is pushing this on our coaches. They want to get college tennis bleeded into the juniors, and five or six years from now. The pros will not argue. Right now, the pros will argue, but pretty soon they, they're not going to care about who, how they get the money, maybe the pros. But what we're doing, ch- chess will stand on its own forever, and the checker players will respect the people who play chess. All right? But hard to pick up becomes hard to put down. Our lifelong players who play tennis for the love of it, what I'm terrified about, I'm going to bring J.P. Weber on here, uh, and I, what I'm terrified, Coach Weber, what I'm terrified about is that in 10 years to 15 years, 
we're not going to have any tennis. They're comparing our sport, our great sport, to pickleball. Give me a break. Give me a break. That's like comparing canefall fishing to fly fishing. You want to go further? The violin to, uh, you know, the uh, harmonica. <laughs> I mean, it, it's ludicrous, but what a shameful. USTA, you should be – I love you guys. A lot of you, the former my players, work down there. You're working hard. But you guys who are making the rules, shame on you for bastardizing the greatest sport in the world. What Mitchell Frank just said. Coach Weber, couple ideas, couple thoughts there. I'm afraid tennis is going to go away. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we got you. You got me on. Hey, Mitchell, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, JP? Not bad. So, so you were coached by Coach Creasy? Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Just during that and, that uh, time, year and a half or so. But Mitch, uh, other guys, Vesa Punk. Uh, Vin, you've got to give credit to Vin who uh, started. Yeah, absolutely. So the yeah. best I worked with him. You know, the best coach could talk forever. Not Coach Creasy's one of the best coaches ever. But I'll tell you real quick. I'm going to tell you, Mitchell, the best coaching he ever did. In my opinion, I've known him for a long time. He won't agree with me, and I actually think this is what he should do, Mitchell. The best coaching he ever did. He came down to zonals. And the kids were tired. These are young kids. They they were twelves, and we had played singles and doubles. I think it was the old format. Well, we had we played two out of three, so it's two out of three singles, two out of three doubles. You know, so it was about five hours or something like that. The matches went down on tiebreaker, so we had to go to dinner. And these are little kids. They got to go to bed early, Mitchell. So I told Coach Creasy, I said, I said I want you to do it in less than ten minutes. I want you to talk to him. Do it in less than ten minutes. He gave such. I have parents, Mitchell, that still, there are mothers that get tears in their eyes at the stories and, and the thing that he, but he encapsulated it so well. If we could keep him to 10 minutes. The other thing I want Coach Creasy to do, and everybody that's listening out there, he would be great. His bet, the greatest way that he would be, Mitchell, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm taking up your time like this, Coach Creasy, but. But no, he would be great. I would love for him to write a children's book. If he wrote all his, you know, his story, Mitchell, when he coached you, he probably told you stories and gave you these concepts and these homilies and these parables. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, those parables and those homilies, those simple stories are the greatest, and that would make him unbelievable. Okay, so to your, anyway, so that's enough of that. But, Mitchell, I've heard a lot about you from Frank Salazar, and I've heard a yep. lot about you from Coach Creasy through the years. So you helped try. Look, Coach Creasy, you mentioned something that I wanted to pick up on real quick. All the leadership in all the organizations are weak. They're very weak. Now, I don't know if you know this, Coach Creasy, but the PTR just changed to the, I don't know, it's like the, that's like racket sports. It, they changed their name. It's no longer the professional tennis registry. It's the They're just trying to survive. <clears throat> These they organizations, you, go ahead. Go ahead. They're trying well, to survive any way they can. Go ahead. Well, that's fine, but I don't see that as, as a good way to do it, but that's fine. Okay, you call it that. Okay, survive, whatever. All right. 
um, the PTA. Uh, that's one of them. But probably the weakest of all the organizations back then was the ITA. The college coaches, because they're busy coaching, a lot of them leave the leadership of that organization to guys who aren't really coaches. If you've noticed through the years, the guys who have led that organization, and I, you, know, you, you may differ with me, and that's fine, but the guys that have led that organization, they're not the best of the coaches out there. they got some extra time on their hands. So these guys, weak, and you guys folded. Once college tennis folded, I mean, I can't believe it. How many Mitchell got those centers? I think Manuel Diaz had over 10,000 in his the year before. Manuel that was 10, 2012. 000. Let me jump in there. 2012, the whole thing got stirred up because they had 32 teams, 16 women, 16 men's at Athens, and it rained the first day, and it was a big cluster mess. And the bottom line on the thing is this outside group, these ITA guys jumped in and said, this is our opening, and they tried to push through NOAD. And there was an online website that put it down. I was at College Park, and I remember just jumping for joy. They had over 10,000 signatures online that did not want NOAD scoring. They did not want it. So my thing, I think there's money behind this. I really think that they're pushing it. That somebody's pushing this on. It's not for the welfare of our children and the game. And I think that no, without – go ahead. You're right, but it's a marketeering sport. But the, but, but the gambling that you refer to all the time, it, they just picked up on it. But I tell you, it, Mitchell, it goes back – now let me go back to so, – so all that, yeah. But the weakest domino fell, and it was the one that Tim Russell and Haggerty and they could all get to fall. And see, once they got that one to fall, then Mitchell, you know what they did was they go like this. They say to the coaches that are coaching the kids, they go, well, we got to do this because that's what college is doing. So they went to that. But the Mitchell, system, now you've got to do a junior tournament. Mitchell, did you grow up playing a, a tiebreaker for the third, or did you grow up playing a full third? <laughs> no, like, almost never play a tiebreaker for the third. Every, okay. like, even the lowest so, level but, tournaments were three, two out of three. So when you went, when you played a tournament, you probably remember this. You would be in a tournament, and there would be so and so, and it was one of your buddies or one of the guys that always, you know, and everybody goes down to that court. He's tied in the third set with so and so, and you know, everybody wanted to see that. And you'd get in, you'd get enthralled in that, and you'd watch that, and you'd see it. Or you maybe even Mitchell, you were involved in that. That no longer happens. Matches just the entire tournament goes. And there's no real drama. There's no real... Uh, let, let me jump in there real quick. Let me jump in there real quick. I'm going to get a couple more comments from Mitchell. Absolutely. I don't, I appreciate your time, Mitchell. We got you off the court today. Yep. But, yep. but here's the thing. There's a thing called a rite of passage for every player, whether it was uh, Dagon, uh <clears throat> John Isner up there in D.C. when he finally broke through. Everybody remembers Federer breaking through that time he beat Sampras at Wimbledon. Players have rites of passage. I mean, Mitchell, I won a 20-18 in third set high school match. When I was a senior in high school, it was a high school match. And that was a big rite of passage to this day, I remember. You can probably remember your greatest matches, some rite of passage. So those are very, very important for the person who wins, but it's also important 
for the pain of losing for the kids who lose 7-6 in the third after two and a half hours because they get a deep, deeper respect for the sport and they make a decision to either quit or recommit. And the point is, is it makes the kid end up honoring the game and the price you have to pay. Our kids do not understand the price you have to pay to be excellent. When they win a tiebreaker for the third, Mitchell, they, it's like kissing old Aunt Sally. It's really not a kiss. It's just, i, I got to win, but I won a tiebreaker for the third. And then when you lose, it doesn't hurt bad enough. To make, and the same thing is true with the college matches now. You said you would have lost a lot more. JP, yep. do you remember interviewing Stevie Johnson's father before he passed away? And uh, sure. what he said, you said, what did he say about Noad scoring if, if Stevie had had to play that? He never, he never would have won what he won. He never would have done what he did for Noad. He, no, he, said, been, he, he said he would have lost 10 lost matches him. anyway. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, at least 10 matches. Yeah, yeah. So, Mitchell, Mitchell, go ahead, go ahead. A few thoughts here. I want to, JP. I'm sorry, I didn't even, uh, folks. I, I'm, I'm not just blowing sunshine here, but JP, if there is a better student of the game, I don't know where it is than you. And and I really appreciate so much that you care this deeply, Mitchell. You as well, Mitchell. Thoughts here. We've got about uh, six or seven minutes here. Yeah, so I think um, I think with with uh, you know being able to uh, play out these matches, uh, you know, just like just like JP said, the most memorable matches are the ones that were deep in the third. You're battling now, you know, you're battling. You've been out there for a long time. You've had the ups and downs, um, you know, and, and you go in there and. Um, and, you know, you're having to problem solve while you're tired, you're physically tired, you're mentally tired. And so I just personally feel that by going through all the, you know, the, the short matches, I mean, even, you know, uh, even, even the, um, you know, like, I mean, one set is obviously even worse. Uh, you know, they just have a lot with, like, beginner entry-level tournaments. And, and, or the round robins, which personally I hate. Uh, because I think that this is, you know, this is, you know, there needs to be a winner and loser, and you, know, you don't get more opportunities, right? It's not, it's not about inclusion. Right. It's about you go, you compete, you put it online, somebody wins, somebody loses. That's what you learn. That's, you know, and so I think that, you know, this just takes away so much from players' learning ability on how to, you know, again, I just personally feel okay if you play a tiebreaker, you have to play one set and about whatever, three minutes, five minutes, whatever, a good test. But one set in five minutes and you can win the match. And Mitchell, and, a question? Yeah. Yep. I, I, go ahead, finish. But make it, but Coach, I want to ask him a question before he's done. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and I think, I think that as a result, you know, players, you know, I, I'm highly biased again, but, you know, I believe a lot in the power of hard work. I believe that, you know, it doesn't, hard work is, 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 a, is not, doesn't guarantee anything, but it gives you a chance. And so, I mean, even this weekend I went to this tournament, like, there are kids in the tournament who are clearly, like, not fit, you know. They're not fit, and they're not professional because, you know, they really only need to play hard for a short amount of time, in my opinion. 
You know, they don't they don't need to play for this long stretch of time. Uh, and so that takes a lot away from, uh, you know, again, the mental learning, especially that I'm big on uh, for my players. Like, it takes away from that. Um, you know, and especially I see the kids who – my kids who are, who are built a little more like me, you know, more of like grinder-type players. And they're the ones who, in my opinion, struggle the most. You know, they, they, they lose a lot of confidence because, like, wow, I'm super fit, but I can't use it. You know, I'm mentally tough, but I can't use it. You know, so. Wow. One of the things Gov- that we're Governor told, Mitchell, the I'm curious. Go ahead, Mitch. I'm curious. Go ahead. Mitchell, one of the things that we're told is guys like you, your age, your generation, you guys like the no-ad stuff. Do you have a lot of friends? Have you talked to your, you know, your core, you know, the guys that are in what is it like out there? Do, do they all like the short stuff or do they not like the short stuff? I, or what is it? I, I I mean, my team, when I was at UVA, everybody pretty much disliked it except for one kid. Uh, one kid was like, but again, the kid was, as coach, you would say he was a show puppy. So, you know, he had a lot of game, but he didn't like to bring it, you know. Um, so, for him, it was, it was a shortcut. But pretty much else, everybody else who I talked to, there were definitely some people who were apathetic who just didn't care. Um, but I would say the majority of the people, I mean, look, I think, I do think it goes down to values a little bit. Um, and so, you know, again, I think we're caught up in a culture of people looking to take shortcuts, looking for magic pills. So this comes across as like maybe a bit of a magic pill or whatnot. Um, but I think that, I think that the majority of players, my, my guess would be definitely an overwhelming majority. I would guess over at least two-thirds, if not higher, would dislike no ads. I would guess. I mean, it's got to be. It might even be higher than that. Right? It's probably like 80%. Were you, the, were you the class? Were you in there? Was it your – was it around your age group where they – remember that Coach Creasy down? It Was it Florida? They flipped a coin for the winner of the clay courts or something like that. Was that you, Mitchell? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was group? about that. That was uh, a junior tournament. That was after Mitchell, I think, but that was unbelievable. That was after yeah. Mitchell. So, Mitchell, Wait, when, you were, when you were – they flipped the coin for the finals of the National Clays. Who won? <clears throat> down when, you know. But let me ask you, where, when you were so, – so, see, a lot of people, where the problem that we have is this. They're coming up, <clears throat> and the way it's played now, they think that's the way it's supposed to be. A lot of them don't know any better. So when you were coming up and it rained, did you? How did you finish tournaments? I always played them out normal. I mean, you only stuff? yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, I will say for consolation, occasionally they would add a ten point breaker, but it would ha- like I remember one year at um, at fourteen clays. It was two thousand six fourteen clays. I was doing very well in the backdrop, and it rained like a couple days in a row, and we still played. <laughs> it's just that we played like but three. Did you, did you only – and back then, did you play like, you know, they do now one one match a day and that's all? No, 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 no. I mean, we were playing four matches could, a day. You could we play two, more. Two singles, four. two doubles every day. Yeah, every day. I mean, that's, that's oh what I remember. God. So yeah, it's definitely been a dumb down. The, the dumb down is unbelievable. But the point I want to make here and get you guys <clears throat> to, to just comment on briefly – is, you know, I've always said easy to pick up, easy to put down, hard to pick up, hard to put down. The value is so much more important than the payoff. And it seems to me that we've gone after the product to win 
it doesn't matter how we win. Uh, you know, the process, this love of the sport, it's okay if we cheapen it, if we get what we want at the end. <clears throat> so our values that we're teaching our kids, tennis will no longer be the sport that teaches them <clears throat> all these great values, you know, and, and, and things. One, one more comment here, Coach Weber. What, what are your thoughts well, there? Well, just, let me try it again. So that's why I was asking him that stuff. He, he played full matches. They played several matches in a day. They didn't play tiebreakers to decide a match. All these changes, all these changes are not coming about organically. They're not coming from the ground up. I think, based on what Mitchell told me from, his, from the kids that he grew up with, they, they didn't want this. We don't want this. None of this change has been – it got foisted upon the weakest of the weak. The weakest group of the organizations was the college. You college coaches are weak as an organization. You folded, you crumbled, you failed to stop it. And so now we've got this. And it's going to continue. It's like pickleball. It's all this other stuff. I'm worried just like you, Coach. I don't know if it'll last. I don't know if it'll it, – there's nothing to it. All those things you mentioned, Coach, it attracts you. It attracted Mitchell to the sport. It attracts you and I. Next time we talk, I, remember, I want to – we'll go back. Bill Wright was like you. He loved the ideas that you gave about, what was it, the endorphins, the, all the things that you got out of the sport. The three drugs we got. The three drugs we got from playing tennis was the dopamine, adrenaline, and endorphins. And and after that, if you won two, won a match or a trophy, rah, rah, rah. But without the dopamine, the endorphins, and the, the adrenaline you get from all the tennis brings and the learning experience, Mitchell pointed that out so, so very well. But the learning... He got filled with all that. These kids now, and based on what he was saying, I listened to it, based on what he said, they don't get those same things. And those no, are the glue, no, those are the no, no, no. And it'll be a fly-by-night. It'll be a fly-by-night sport, something easy to pick up, easy to put down. <clears throat> That's a tragedy, and we've got to get to our leaders. Out there, uh, we're about done. I hope and I can get Jay Coach Weber on next week again. There's no one more experienced. Coach Weber has coached at five different colleges, uh, big, big-name colleges. There's nobody that studies the game like he does. Very few that care and are as passionate about his kids that he works with. And uh, But <clears throat> the point is we've got to continue this. Out there, listen, listen. This is not done for the welfare of your children. It is not done for the welfare of your children. There is an ulterior motive. They're, they're diluting the sport, polluting the sport, and they're ended up prostituting the sport. And we cannot, folks, you got to stand up, speak out. Come on now. You know that's all we, we need to say. I give you the last word. We got to sign off, Coach Weber. Last word. Write that book. Write the children's book. It'll okay. I, I've got, listen, I've been working on it a little bit in the mornings. You know, my 47 project. That's if those of you can't sleep when you get older, let's, let's uh, try to write or be active at that time. But we thank Mitchell Frank for being on. He had to hang up there. J.P. Weber, God bless you. And listen, folks, this is Coach Chuck Creasy in American Tennis, and we will listen next week, same time. Same program.
America.